Hey everybody, it's Jim Surick with the Medical Sales Nation. Thanks for joining us today for this podcast. I'm interviewing a venture capitalist, somebody who I've worked with in the past. He's going to provide some great insights from his seat as a venture capitalist, talk about the medical device industry, the medical industry as a whole, what they're looking at, what they're excited about for the future, what we should be doing as medical sales professionals to get ready for the upcoming changes and how to stay ahead of the game. So without further ado, let's go for it. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Medical Sales Nation. It's Jim Sirk here, and we are not with Charlie Johnson today. He's out on assignment, um, having some fun in the sun in Connecticut. So, But I have a really exciting opportunity to be able to talk to Josh Baltzell, somebody who I've worked with in the past. He's a venture capitalist. He's with two different firms, Sightline Partners and Split Rock, and I'll let him explain uh, how he has an affiliation with two different venture capitalists because they're capital firms. It's uh, it's interesting, and um, and with that, Josh, if you could introduce yourself to the medical sales nation, that'd be great. Great, thanks, Jim, and thanks for the opportunity to uh, share some of my thoughts today. So, the quick background, and then let's get to the interesting part, which hopefully will be the Q and A. But uh, I've been in the medical device industry since uh, 1993. I started my career with SciMed, which many of you listening today will know became uh, the cardiovascular division of Boston Scientific. And starting with them, I was uh, kind of uh, a gopher, uh, believe it or not, the, the old joke about starting the mailroom. I was just a notch above the mailroom uh, <laughs> as an intern, actually. Uh, but uh, they, they gave me a shot when arguably they shouldn't have and uh, worked my way up the ladder into various marketing product management positions uh, with their um, angioplasty balloon catheter lines, their rotational atherectomy products, and then they was able to segue into business development roles uh, with them after they were acquired by Boston Scientific. So I was with Boston Scientific up until 1999, at which point in time I had the opportunity to go work for a small publicly traded company called Applied Biometrics. And Applied Biometrics made a cardiac output monitoring technology, and uh, they were just launching their product, so I came aboard to be the head of uh, marketing and business development for them. And it was a fun time, but a short time, because it turned out not too long after I got there, uh, we learned that our product was just not ready for prime time yet. Okay. And yeah, unfortunately, as many, yeah, as many of these medical device companies happen, uh, you know, it's, they struggle to find financing yeah, when things go sideways. And unfortunately, Applied Biometrics was one of those companies. But the silver lining in that cloud is I got to know the folks at the investment banking firm of Piper Jaffrey. Uh, Piper was helping Applied Biometrics at the time with some strategic things. And so I got to know them through that process. And when I found myself unemployed as a result of Applied Biometrics demise, uh, the folks at Piper were kind enough to take me on as a project. And uh, I was able to learn uh, over a period of a couple of years uh, you know, corporate finance, mergers and acquisitions, public offerings, things of the like. So I really, really liked it. 
but was very much transactional in nature. So I kind of joke that investment bankers are basically the real estate agents of corporate America, right? They buy and sell companies on behalf of their clients. They help take them public, etc. Love the work, but it is transactional, which is great for some people. Whereas I wanted to be more part of the organization. I wanted to be able to deal with all aspects of the operations of the company. And so at Piper Jaffray, I was approached by a group called St. Paul Venture Capital, which is just the predecessor for Split Rock. And uh, they were looking for somebody to do deals, uh, venture deals, but also somebody that knew a little something about the various operating aspects of medical device companies. Once again, kind of started as a low man on the totem pole, but was thankful for the opportunity. Uh, was able to work my way up the ranks there, and uh, long story short, uh, eventually became a partner with uh, Split Rock Partners, um, and uh, enjoyed being with them full-time until about 2014, at which time uh, the partnership made a decision not to raise additional funds. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with venture capital, we can get to end that later, but we... Uh, raise money periodically to invest, and once those dollars have been invested, um, we manage the companies where those dollars are. And that's the phase that Split Rock is in today. So they're no longer making new investments, but we have several companies where we um, still have dollars at work. We're actively managing those companies. Should be several more years before those companies reach their optimal conclusion. So. I'm on the Split Rock website because of that, but I also am a guy that likes to do deals, and so I've also joined Sightline Partners because they are actively doing new deals in the medical device space. So I have two business cards, one's the, uh, the old gig, one's the new gig, but it allows me to stay very active in, in the medical device arena and, and thoroughly enjoy it. Okay, great. So just out of curiosity, when... Um you, you go from marketing and business development, I get that, and then you go to the investment banking. Where did you find that you're, you're working in the medical device field and that marketing commercial side helped you understand or, or provides more value to the investment bankers as, as those transactions were occurring? Because like you said, so for people that are listening, I think it's important because uh, um, they'll think of investment bankers own almost the same as venture capitalists, but they're not. They're just the middleman doing the transaction between two companies, correct? That's exactly it, yeah. So um, a banker typically comes in for a very short period of time to do a specific task, either sell the company, buy a company, take the company public, and when that task is done, they move on. Whereas a venture capitalist makes an investment, call it day one, and here's some factual data that relates to our firm, it's typically eight years later after day one that we actually get a return on that investment. So in that eight-year period, we typically sit on the boards of these companies. We're typically very active helping them in the hiring and firing decisions, in the resourcing decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So we take a much more hands-on role. To answer your question about where my background helped in banking, it was that when we went to try and pitch a new client, right? So now we're trying to get the business from, I'm making up a name, Acme Medical. Right. 
if we're trying to get Acme's business and we walk in and we say, we're the greatest bank on earth, which all banks say, right. um, you need to differentiate yourself somehow, right? And so you can say, well, we've done all these awesome transactions, but it's also helpful to be able to come in and say, what's your regulatory strategy? Why did you do that? You know, what are you doing for reimbursement? And I knew just enough to be dangerous there okay. where we could go beyond the financial aspect. And that, that was somewhat helpful, which was good for me because I knew precious little about finance. So I was really weak there. Okay. All right. No, that's good. So, so basically your experience in the commercial side and understanding and have to understanding a reimbursement pathway, understanding clinical data that you know, clinical studies that you have to do. So you go in and you were able to provide that value to the customer Acme Medical that you were able to provide something else an investment banker typically wouldn't ask. Right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So then so then you make that jump into the VC world and I think you know this is that you know, you see it all the time in TV and movies, the venture capitalists and everyone, you know, that I talk to that talks about venture capitalists. And um, maybe we can get into a little bit too, describing what a private equity uh, firm does as well. But they, um, they have this idea of what a venture capitalist does, what that life is like. Maybe um, uh, you could tell us when you first became and went into a venture capitalist firm, what did you think was going to happen and what actually happened or was it the same? Yeah, um, it was pretty close because a lot of our clients at Piper Jaffrey um, were companies that were backed by venture capitalists. And so I got to work with those venture capitalists on transactions and get to know them, understand how they looked at the world, what their business was like. So there was definitely some learning, um, the, the nuances of how to finance a company and, and how to work on board governance, things like that was certainly an education, but I had a pretty good sense of, of where they were coming from. Um, you mentioned venture capital, private equity. I think that's a great distinction. So let me give you my very, very rough definition there. And I say rough because there's exceptions. Sure. But when people ask me about this, I describe venture capital as investments that are primarily made into private companies that are not profitable, okay? Okay. Private equity firms are primarily investments made into companies that are profitable, and they use the profits of that company to help finance their acquisition. So they actually go get a loan, secured against the profits of the company, to go help buy that company or finance that company. And um, those can be public companies, but typically are private. And then the third bucket is hedge funds. Everybody says, well, a hedge fund is this, hedge fund is that. Hedge funds almost always a firm that invests in public companies. There are exceptions, but almost always public companies. They're almost never involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the company. They're buying and selling really quickly. So think of it as a continuum, venture capital on the early side, private equity in the middle, and hedge funds at the end. Okay, great. No, that, that's a great education for, uh, for our listeners. I appreciate that. So when you went, when, so you said it was about the same. Did anything surprise you um, that you didn't expect when you got into the venture capitalist world? Yeah, um, there were some, some surprises. So I was under the impression that I was going to sit at a desk most days and have all these business plans come at me and we would review every business plan 
in almost the same fashion right. and determine the merits of a potential investment and, and then make a big stack into a short stack into a couple deals that we would get done. All right. And that actually happens, but I was surprised at the way it happened. So instead of methodically looking at business plans, we almost never looked at a business plan. <laughs> oh, you're now, kidding. I want, no, and I want to be clear. It's important that companies have a business plan, but venture capitalists don't want them and they don't look at them. What they look at <laughs> almost exclusively yeah. is PowerPoint presentation. And so you need to have a PowerPoint presentation, and we've got really short attention spans, that's short. So you got to have, like I always joke, it's got to be about 10 slides. Wow. Yeah, you got to talk about the product, the market, your intellectual property, your regulatory, your commercialization strategy. And admittedly, it is short. It's not going to tell the whole story. But what you're doing is helping the venture capital firm get interested to have another meeting. Okay. So I was surprised that we never, ever made an investment into somebody we didn't know. We would always start a relationship. So I'll pick on you, Jim. This yeah. wasn't your and I's background, but since we know each other, if you would have knocked on my door with a business plan and said, will you fund Acme Medical, our, our made-up company again? Okay. I, I would probably not invest in that company, even if it was really cool. I don't know you. I don't know anything about Acme. If you called me up and said, I would like to get your opinion on a new effort that I'm working on. We're not ready to fund it yet, but I just like your opinion. I'll probably take that meeting. Interesting. Because I want to learn more about it, right? So we always joke, if you need a quick answer, the answer is no. <laughs> if, if you want to guess, you're going to have to develop a relationship, right? So it's, it's going back and forth. Let me see your slide deck, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't expect that. That was a surprise for me. And it was also a surprise for me that there were a number of biases that every venture capital firm had. Okay. So uh, making up an example, I'm not, I want to be clear, I'm not being specific here, but since our listeners uh, know the industry, there is relatively little investment activity because there's very, very few startups in cardiac surgery. There's okay. relatively little innovation there and there's very little opportunity to take a cardiac surgery company public or get them acquired, which are the two ways that we make a return on our venture sure. capital dollars. So if a PowerPoint presentation comes across our desk that says, we have a new cardiac surgery idea, we'd likely say no because it's in cardiac surgery. There would be a bias against cardiac surgery. Conversely, there might be an area like an area that you and I've spent a lot of time, ear, nose, and throat, where we're very excited about that space. Mm -hmm. And so we're more likely to do a lot of work. So I thought the same amount of work would be done on every opportunity. And in reality, there's almost this triage where we would look at a deal and we'd say, nope, not a fit. Too early, too late, don't know the person, don't like the disease state. And, and that was a surprise to me as well. So, Josh, when you went in, though, and you're saying that you needed to know somebody, so being new to the venture side, I should step back. When you were in the investment banking side, did your network grow enough where you were able to take meetings because of people you knew? Or was it hard for you to start because you didn't maybe know the players that had the new ideas? 
Um, uh, so, you know, oddly enough, the answer to that is yes to, to both, right? So a little, it, it depended upon the situation that, that I, I encounter both of those things. So, you know, I get a lot of um, folks, particularly in business school, that approach me and say, hey, I'm interested in venture or I have an idea I want to get funded. Mm-hmm. How do I do that? Because I don't know anybody in venture. Right. And so what, what I tell people to do is actually what I did before I was in venture and then what really, really worked well for me after I was in venture, and that is to have some kind of introduction. It could be your you know, a reference to a third cousin. It doesn't matter, but it might be looking up at the website, for instance, Split Rock Partners, and looking on there and seeing that we're invested in in Telus Medical. And then you could say, hey, you don't know me, but I used to know Jim Surik in a past life, and I know he was at Intellis. Um, can we talk? It could be that vague. Oh, interesting. But just... Just something that gives you a sense that the person has done some homework. So the ones that always drive me crazy <laughs> is uh, the, the, the entrepreneur that will not address the email to me specifically. It says, dear sir, I'm raising money. Please look at the following and get back to me. Well, if you want some significant amount of money, how about a personalized email? Right. How about a little effort looking at my website showing me that you've done some homework rather than the spray and pray? So, you know, venture capitalists are just like anybody else. We want to be sold. We want to be catered to. Show us that you've done a little homework. Show us that you're networked. Once again, it can be a very, very obscure reference, and we're more likely to take a meeting or a phone call. Okay, great. No, that, that's really helpful. It just goes to show no matter what you're doing, you're always selling. So in any business, right? So, so what are, uh, when you run into people, you run into, you know, sales reps at different companies that, that you're involved with, what do you think the biggest misconception of venture capitalists is? Yeah, the one that always surprises me a little bit is that we'll, um, we want to get in and take control, Hmm. right? So be careful, don't get venture capital dollars. Those guys are just going to take control. Well, as a matter of fact, I would say about 5% of venture-backed companies are controlled by one venture capital firm. We almost always hold a minority position. Now, there may be multiple venture capitalists all owning a minority position that adds up to majority control, but no one investor typically has control nor wants control. That's a big responsibility. It causes some big issues. But the other uh, surprise is that a lot of founders want money and no questions. So they've effectively <laughs> sold part of the company, right? right. So venture capital, capitalists will typically take, depending upon the stage, a 10 to 20% ownership stake in a company. So we'll go back to our Acme Medical. And I find that a lot of CEOs, particularly entrepreneur CEOs, say, I'd like X millions of dollars from you. But I really don't want any questions. I, I, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And, and we might hit our milestones. We might not hit our milestones. But you got to believe in me. You're betting in me. And in truth, we are, right? We really care about who's in the company. But I think very few, at least first-time entrepreneurs, appreciate the way they got their money is they sold part of the company. Right. right? By selling part of the company, 
That means somebody else, a venture capitalist, is a part owner. That's right. A part owner. Get a say in the entity. That's right. And a lot of folks, I think, are surprised by the fact that we're professional managers and we want to say. So that the way I illustrate that to folks, particularly in the medical device arena, is I say, you know, this is not our own money that we're investing. This is money that comes from pension funds, endowments, foundations. These are big pools of capital that invest in everything from I'm making it up, cement plants in Honduras to logging in Alaska to everything in between, right? right. Venture capital and healthcare care venture capital is a small piece of the pie. And the reason that's significant is if we put money into a company and we're looking for a return in some period of time, like I said, usually seven or eight years, we need to make sure the company is tracking to progress so that they can exit or provide a return in that period of time. If they're not doing that, then our investors, those uh, limited partners, the pension funds, the foundations, and endowments, call us up and they say, what's going on? Right. And if I say, we've got a really exciting company, making it up, that is going to cure cancer, the very first question they're going to ask is, great, how much money did I make? <laughs> and that's not worthless. But in truth, if you think about it, it's no different than any of us that have a mutual fund. So I always joke to business school students, when you get your mutual fund statement, could come from your 401k, your IRA, it could be a, a personal investment, name one stock in one of your mutual funds. And almost nobody can name any of the stocks in any of the mutual funds. So I ask them, what do you look at? And the thing they look at is how much that mutual fund is worth today compared to what it was last month or last quarter. So true. And our limited partners are the same way. I hope you cure cancer. That'd be nice. How much is it worth? Because <laughs> you have a mutual fund statement for me. I'm investing in you to make money. Right. And so it's a long-winded way to go back to what I was surprised about with entrepreneurs. They don't understand frequently that that's the chain of where the money comes from and what the expectations are. They frequently think we're backing them to succeed at any cost. And in reality, we need them to succeed in a reasonable period of time with a reasonable amount of money. Right. So it's interesting you talk about the activity that you have within these companies. So I have to assume, like we worked at Intellis together, I came probably, what, four or five years after you made the first investment? You were quite involved really in the beginning, and then slowly over time, your involvement tapered off a little bit. Why, so what's going on in your head as that transition's taking place? Yeah, I mean, our goal is actually to not be very involved in the companies, right? Because if, the more we're involved, the fewer companies we can invest in because sure. we just don't have so much time. So our goal is to get you know things going and coming along. And I always joke, the, uh, the board meetings that I attend that I like the most are the ones that I add the least amount of value. Like, I like to come in and hear, oh, we're on plan? Great. No question. Right? <laughs> right. Uh, in the early days, there's a lot of uncertainty, right? You're usually developing a product. You're going to the FDA. You're working on clinical trials. There's just more things for us to engage upon. So we are typically more involved in the early days. But as things go along, we have uh, folks that are more experienced with the business. Hopefully, things are going better. 
and we can start stepping away. Okay, so that's great. So this is a great background and perspective from a venture capitalist on how they look at the business, right? Because you're looking at it purely from your business perspective. Now, I know our audio, audience wants to hear about the market today in medical sale, med- the healthcare environment, medical devices, biotech, pharma, whatever it is, services in healthcare. How do you see the market today um, and where it's headed? And, and let's just start there. Sure, sure. So, and I'll preface it by saying uh, I'm frequently wrong. So these are my my perspectives. These are not necessarily sure. facts. I've never known uh, you to um, be wrong, Josh. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm actually very excited about the state of innovation in healthcare today. And as you mentioned, there are multiple segments within healthcare. Right? There's medical devices. There's uh, pharmaceuticals, biotech services. Uh, full disclosure, almost all of my time is spent in devices. I spend a little time in pharmaceuticals, but mostly devices. Everything's becoming very specialized these days. So I will concentrate most of my comments on devices because of that background. No problem. But all aspects of the healthcare continuum, all those sub-segments, are actually growing quite handily. And um, that's because of the greater demographic trends, but also because there's an opportunity for innovation across the spectrum. Um, and so specific to devices, you know, we all are aware that, you know, historically many of the medical device sales were focused on uh, physician preference items, right? So if we would go to a physician and say, hey, our widget is better than the other widgets you have, do you want to try it? You know me, I wouldn't steer you wrong. And that, that typically worked and it worked well. That can still work, but as we all know, it, it happens less frequently. Mm-hmm. And it happens less frequently for a couple reasons. Once again, probably telling everybody that's listening uh, what they already know. But the bar for clinical benefit is going up, right? So that's you have right. to do bigger trials. You have to have a greater impact, whether that's percutaneous valves, whether that's spinal cord stimulators, whatever it is, it's not enough to be better, you've got to be really good, a lot better, preferably cheaper, Mm -hmm. right, and quicker and safer, right? So that's harder. Those physician preference things are fewer and far between. That's what we're all feeling. Those are hard things to do, and fewer venture-backed companies are focused on physician preference items. They're still out there, but they're just fewer. But the good news is, Everything swings around, and within medical devices, one of the things that's really interesting right now, or two of the things I should say, is a technology that would enable a procedure to be done in a less invasive site of care. So Mm -hmm. moving from the hospital to the hospital outpatient department, moving from there to the ASC, ASC to the doctor's office, and even into the patient's own home, right? So any technology that's not necessarily better clinically, but can facilitate that transition, can do it in a less invasive, less expensive way, those are of interest today. So that's one category. The other category is something that would improve the safety of a procedure or a patient's experience. So many uh, hospital administrators don't go on the record talking about this, but we've, we've talked to them and several have said to us, you know, we don't really need better anymore, right? We don't need a new, I'll make it up, 
uh, drug-eluting stents. Sure. Or new artificial gift. Or the ones that are out there, pretty good. Right. And then we, we ask them, like, well, what do you need? Like, what, what's an important thing that you're spending time thinking about right, right. now? And frequently what they say is, you know, if you can improve safety. Because when there is a safety incident at a hospital, whether that's an infection or uh, some kind of complication within a surgery, you know, that frequently will end up in a lawsuit, right? An aggrieved patient will say, hey, that shouldn't have happened. They lawyer up, they sue, and they frequently will get a settlement, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big pain in the butt, as you can imagine, right. for a lot of hospitals. So they're looking for technology that prevents that that concern. And as many folks on the, uh, that are listening today are aware, um, CMS has actually come up with a list of things called never events. Mm. These are things that they have dubbed should literally never happen in a hospital. There's 27 of them, I think, to date. And if they happen in an institution, uh, CMS said we won't pay for it. So these are hospital-acquired infections, retained surgical objects, operations on the wrong uh, body part, et cetera, et cetera. And so the hospital is very sensitive to those things. If there's a technology that reduces the rate or risk of a never event, they're interested in those. And so we have found as investors technologies that can be sold directly to the C-suite that address some of those never events are, are of great interest. And these are products that, by definition, don't have reimbursement. So we as investors, right. we don't have to go through that hassle. It's, it's private paying. Um, and you're typically selling to the C-suite instead of one doctor per procedure per day. Right? That's a very, as our listeners know, that's a, that, that can be effective, but it's a very time-consuming and hard process. If we can go to the hospital's administration and get them to convert one and done, that's a much more effective sale. So we like that a lot. And then the last category within that is anything that improves patient satisfaction. Everybody's on social media. So if somebody says, hey, I went to, making it up, St. Joe's Hospital and had a great hip replacement, that's actually wonderful PR for the hospital. Conversely, if they say, hey, I went to St. Joe's and I got an infection and I've had all these problems, don't go there, that's a huge issue. Right. So we want to improve that aspect of patient care. So that's where we're focusing our time. And those are things that are done by devices and diagnostics, not by pharmaceuticals or biotech. So I'm really excited about the future because of those trends. So that's interesting. So in some of the podcasts that we've done, we've talked about the sales rep and the evolution that they need to take place and how they have to look at their products. And sometimes companies won't provide, I don't want to say the right training, but they're not messaging it right to the hospital. And what you were, what you were talking about is from the clinical side, you have to have a clinical value. It has to be a strong clinical value. It has to have a strong financial value, either make money for the institution, save money for the institution, the doctor, the patient. And then from a strategic perspective, if you if you have two hospitals and one has a bad infection rate and the other one has a great one, the strategic advantage goes to the hospital with the with a great, you know, infection, low infection rate. So we talk about that with the sales organization or the sales forces to really think about your clinical, strategic, and financial value as it impacts the physician, the patient the practice, the healthcare system in general. And if you can't answer that, 
you probably as a sales rep need to think about what you're doing and, and look for an area to go to. So it sounds like that's how you're looking at your investments. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's turned us into little, little business minded people instead of clinical minded people. And to your point, I think it's the same for sales reps. They need to be sort of little mini GMs of that uh, practice or of that business that's out there. It's, it's not a feature benefit world anymore. It's a holistic business world, right? You gotta, you gotta sell all aspects of the business that relate to the technology you're affiliated with. Right. And so you mentioned, and I couldn't agree more. You mentioned, cause we see it, cause when you go and talk to a purchasing manager, we could offer a less expensive product, but that's not necessarily what they're interested in, right? They just go, yeah, we're not really interested in that because we have all these other areas that we have to be concerned about. That's right, and, and that's particularly painful and true for sales reps, right? Because if, if your whole quota is built around what a specific hospital is using, but all they really care about is price, how much are you going to be able to impact that, right? Because whichever company you work for or whichever competitor you're working against, more and more, not exclusively, but more and more is starting to deal with those pricing decisions at a very high corporate level, not at the sales rep level. They come in and they say, here's the IDN price. Uh, if you give us all the business, you know, you, you, we, we, we'll, we'll go in there. And the sales rep becomes marginalized in the process. And so that's very difficult if the only variable is price. If you can bring in some of these other aspects of it, you can bring in economic benefit, safety, well-being, and interest of the patient, um, you're going to have much, much more success. And so, Josh, don't you think then as medical sales evolves, like you, you said, physician preference items, that's where I grew up in the spinal implant business, but so, I've seen this evolve completely over the last 20-some-odd years where it goes back to the clinical financial and strategic value for all the players within the healthcare system that you, you see this evolution away from these physician preference items because the physicians, the doctors, the surgeons, they're being becoming more partners with their institutions. So while I may like you, Josh, and you, you were selling me spinal implants for Acme Medical, now you're with Zeta Medical and you're selling spinal implants, I'm not, I love you, I'll go out to dinner with you, but I'm not making exactly. that switch, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so absolutely. It's, and it's changing, and that's what we're, we're trying to message to the sales organization is this evolution's taking place. It's not to scare anybody, but relationship selling is physician preference items, but that's evolving and morphing, and our sales process needs to evolve with that. That's exactly it. Well said. So what do you think from, uh, from your perspective, you're, you've invested in a medical device company and you're going to hire, you're going to go after a commercial team. What are you looking for now in the people that you're bringing in to that VP of sales role or even sales reps? What, what advice are you trying to provide those companies with? Yeah, a couple things. So, um, as you just very well articulated, you know, sales is no longer just sales, right? Sales is an outreach of all aspects of the business. It's an extension of all aspects of the business. It, I'm, sorry, so Josh, I, um, I'm, I'm sorry, Josh, just to interrupt. So, we're talking like a business-to-business -business sell now, right? It's a B2B sell. Effectively, right? Because as I'm thinking about what I want a VP of sales to do for 
our made-up company, Acme Medical. What I want them to do is not just to call up Dr. Surik and say, hey, you know, our thing is green and it goes to 11 and you should buy it. Right. I, I want, I, I want um, the, the VP of sales to be able to picture um, a, a, a business that has multiple components, as you mentioned, the, the, the strategic, the operational, the clinical, and, and be able to create a business that can't be upended by somebody else's widget that comes down the road. And so I need a VP of sales that can speak uh, coherently to all aspects of what the physician or the institution is dealing with. And so when I interview them, I typically ask them about how they've run their territories in the past. And I don't care if they came as a sales rep and then they're interviewing as a VP of sales, that happens sometimes, or if they've been in sales a long time and they're finally making the, the leap to VP of sales, I want to understand how they approach their business. And, and that business, if they can articulate, had multiple components of it, and they were looking at all facets of the customer's needs, right. I'm interested. If they come in and say, I know six doctors, we're great buddies, and we golf on the weekends. That's not a good strategy, right? Because to your point, somebody else goes to Zeta. Right. I'm, I, I'm not going to necessarily get that business. So that, that is one of the key things I look at. I also like uh, VPs of sales, but sales reps as well, for that matter, to be good consumers of the industry. So one of the things I always ask people in an interview is I say, what companies in the medical device arena do you think are well-run? Which ones have a great sales and marketing team? And which ones do you think have great clinical data? If I get a blank exp expression where somebody says, well, my last company was pretty good, I'm nervous. Right. You're not a good consumer of the information that's out there. How do you go approach a physician and an institution and explain to them all aspects of the business if you're not understanding how a bunch of different businesses run. So the, the guy or gal that impresses me the most are the ones that can rattle off three or four companies, public or private, I don't care. They don't have to know a ton about them, but they have to know enough from freely available information to speak about why they respect them. And so I encourage everybody, if you're not, is to collect publicly available information, Wall Street research reports, et cetera, and just look at some companies that are out there. Why are they valued the way they are? Have they had good success with the FDA? Have they not? Be versed in these things. It will help you in your day-to-day -day business with whichever company you're in today. You know what, Josh? It's, it's funny because the folks listening to this, you and I did not set this conversation up. It's a free-flowing conversation. But what you're saying is be student of the game. Be a student of your game, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so we talk about that all the time about you have to go in and you have to learn about the changes that are taking place in the healthcare environment. You have to provide more value than my widget has 10 different things it can do. It's much more um, uh, expansive than that these days. And so, so that's great. I mean, it, it just feeds right into it. So now just to take another step back, can you talk a little bit about your investment strategy? We talked about the different types that you're looking at. But your investment strategy, early stage, mid-stage, late stage, across the board, how do, you, how do you look at that today? Yeah, so um, I, I have had this business described to me by another venture capitalist who's much more successful than I am as um, diet-based. Are you uh, 
herbivore, are you a carnivore, are you an omnivore, etc. And in, he describes his business, and I describe my business as omnivorous, which is we'll kind of do anything, right? We'll do early, we'll do late. What we worry more about is the amount of money that is likely to be required to get a return on our investment. So the ones that are very, very difficult today for venture capitalists to do are long-term implants that require lots of clinical data. Now, I've invested in those. I'm part of some of those companies still today. But, you know, as a general rule of thumb, it takes about $100 million or more to get a heavy-duty implantable therapy from a cocktail napkin to approved and early commercialization. Doesn't mean it's not worth it, but those are much tougher deals than if an idea comes about and says, hey, we need, I'm making it up, $20 million over the life of the company to get FDA cleared, to start launching the product, et cetera. So we're no different than anybody else. Okay. We'd like to make as much money as we can by putting in as few dollars as possible. So I always joke, our best investment is the one where we put in the fewest number of dollars and have the best gain, right? So we're more interested in that than owning a lot of the company or anything like that. And the way we do that is to invest in companies that have actually relatively low capital needs. And so that tends to mean later stage companies with heavy duty therapeutic products, or it can mean earlier stage products, but ones that are easier to get to market cheaper to sell. Okay. And has that that viewpoint changed over the last five years or is it pretty much a steady way of you've looked at your investments? You know, I would say that the viewpoint has stayed the same, but the result has been slightly different. So there are just fewer companies out there uh, that are at a stage with a heavy duty, you know, high tech implant that kind of makes sense from a valuation perspective. We'll still look at them. But they're, they're just tougher to do those deals. So as a result, we find ourselves doing more and more deals that are uh, sold um, more to a C-suite or maybe sold in a physician's office because those require fewer dollars to get to market. So okay. that's kind of how we've been spending our time. Okay, great. So I want to go into something, um, and we've touched on it a little bit, maybe go into a little bit more depth. I see all these big medical device companies merging. You know, the Medtronic and the Covidians, they're coming together. Um, Wright Medical and Tournier, you, you, just, you just see them. Strikers on an acquisition hunt every, every quarter, just getting bigger and bigger. And so as a, as a sales professional, I sometimes worry, thinking to myself, well, I'm going to have to work for one of these big companies, or big, yeah, these big companies, because as the hospital systems merge, and they get bigger. The selling is taking place from a, a carpeted level from both sides. So, you know, the, the, the executives in one of the big companies talking to executives at the big hospital chains, the smaller companies being less capable of breaking through those barriers because widgets don't matter, effectiveness, safety, cost containment. We don't need a better widget, as you said. Um, makes me think that these smaller medical device companies are going to have even a harder time competing. And I just wanted to get your take. Am I being paranoid? Is it, is it, should I be wearing a, an aluminum cap? Should I take that aluminum cap off my head? Right. Or, or is this, or or how do you see that really? 
Yeah, so I think you have to parse it once again, right? So um, I, I the first example that comes to mind, uh, not not because there's not opportunity there, but just because it's a little bit more mature, is uh, for instance artificial hips. You know, if you're going to be a startup in the artificial hip market, yeah, it's going to be tough sledding, and it's kind of irrespective of how good your thing is, just because there's so many choices out there that work good enough, right. right? And they're they're owned by big companies. I think if you're going after a very competitive space that's owned by the big guys, that that one I think you're right. Put your aluminum cap on. You're gonna <laughs> you're gonna be scared about that one. Now I think if you've got a uh, if you're part of a company that has got a technology that really differentiates itself, uh, particularly on on the safety side, the patient experience side, and is sold um, more to the C-suite. It's a a very differentiated product, maybe not therapeutically, but once again, from a safety perspective, I think those are things that the big companies have very, very little of and are, uh, are anxiously looking for. And I think startups do that better than anybody else. I also think the big companies struggle getting technologies to work in less invasive sites of care. And so if your company can facilitate that transition, uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of opportunity. Clearly, the way that we try to get these companies to provide a return for us is to one day be purchased. So sure. uh, you know, that trend is not going to change, and the big will get bigger. But the hope, and what we're seeing in isolated situations, is a lot of the mid-sized companies are starting to be buyers now. Um, it's taken a while, but we're okay. starting to see some interesting smaller transactions happen there. So the ecosystem, I think, is still healthy. You know, there's there's not a fear that you're necessarily only going to work for one of four large medical device companies. There is going to continue to be a, a, a vast spectrum that people can participate in. And really that goes back to what you've said and we've, we've discussed is that if you're going to a, a physician preferred item that's a hip, a knee, a spinal implant, something like that, it's probably not a great move from a startup perspective because you're up against the giants and they're going to they're gonna fight hard to keep their business. So look at it, like you said, from just a different perspective than what a lot of the folks listening to this might have been in the medical field for you know, 10, 15 years, surgeon preference items were, were, were it, relationship selling. But once again, it's evolving. That's right. And I want to be clear because there's maybe listeners out there that are working for a really cool artificial hip company. And I, I'm not suggesting that innovation uh, won't happen or can happen. I'm, I'm constantly impressed that it does. I'm simply illustrating that's a very competitive space that's dominated by large players. And I think any time the technology you're part of is trying to sell into one of those types of environments, it's going to be really, really hard. So to your point, what we look at is, you know, somebody that's got a technology that addresses a problem that really nobody else is looking at. So for instance, this never event list, you know, we've invested in a couple companies that are the only ones out there trying to address that particular never event problem. And what's fun about that is you don't really have any competition. That's right. And what's hard about that is you have a big educational component to the business. But a lot of sales reps are great at that. And a lot of sales reps enjoy that, right? To educate a physician, educate an institution. 
here's what's happening in your business. Here's how I'm going to help you with what I'm doing. Yep, that's great. No, that, that ties into the, the challenger sales model of knowing as much about the business right as your customer does. So you're, you're not asking a bunch of questions. You're just saying, hey, we know this is an issue. We've got a solution. So you get right to it. No, that's great. Um, I, another question on, on big med tech, I go to the, uh, you know, the big conventions out there and you start to see a lot of the medical device companies at their booths still have their products, but they also have these services that they're offering to help contain costs and partner with hospitals. What's your interpretation of that? Is, is there an investment strategy around that? Um, well, there's frequently an investment strategy around everything. So, uh, <laughs> I, I forgot. I'm, I'm talking to a venture capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for an angle whenever I go into one of these situations. But, I mean, listen, the big companies have the same problem the small companies they do, just on a bigger scale, right? So if you're selling, you're a big company and you're selling a product that three or four other competitors are, you know, you don't want to compete solely on price. And so one of the things they're doing, of course, is to try and be value-add in other ways. So they add services or uh, management of a certain aspect of an institution's business. I think that's intriguing. I think there will be more of that for sure in the future. We're actually seeing internationally where a lot of that's taking place. So I think there is going to be an angle there. But once again, it's different than a feature and benefit cell. Right. It's a holistic operational cell of how to solve business issues for an institution on a number of different dimensions. Yeah, no, that's great. So I, I want to go back where you talked about split rock and you're not investing in medical device anymore. And um, wondering how does that, why does that occur in certain venture firms? Why do you say, okay, we're done when we're going to move on? Yeah. So, and just for clarity, it's not just medical devices. We're not investing in new companies, period. Okay. And the, the, real, uh, the real reason for that is um, venture funds are structured differently than what many of the listeners might think of. They are closed-end funds. And what that simply means is you can't put your money in and take it out whenever you want. You are contractually obligated as an investor over a period of time, and the period of time is frequently 10 to 12 years, to invest uh, a certain amount of the fund according to a legal document that you sign. Uh, and then the returns happen over a period of years after that. So it's a very long-term business. But because of that, we have to go raise what we call a fund. It's a closed-end vehicle of a certain size. So a lot of the listeners will see XYZ fund raised $300 million. Well, they didn't actually get a check for $300 million. They got a commitment to provide $300 million over 10 years. Okay. But once that's done, once that commitment's done, you have to go raise another pool of capital to go put to work. So when a venture fund stops making new investments, what that means is they didn't raise a new fund. It doesn't mean they're not continuing to invest in and support the companies that they already have ownership in. And that's Split Rock situation. There's a number of companies that they still have investments in. We have what are called reserves or capital that we've set aside to invest further in those companies if they need it. And we'll manage those investments over a period of years. But we didn't go out and raise more money to make new investments. 
And the reasons that really related to the interests of the partners. A couple of partners wanted to retire. They didn't want to sign up for another 10 or 12 year commitment personally. Sure. And as a result, then everybody says, okay, well, let's not go raise a new fund. Okay. So it's not an indication that, because you mentioned you're really excited about what's going on in healthcare in the investments. It's not an indication, and I misinterpreted it, that we were, uh, Split Rock was shutting down their medical. Uh, Investments. They're just shutting down. It's, it wasn't an indictment against the uh, the health of the healthcare. Okay. Yeah, SplitRock uh, invests in, in software, uh, internet uh, services companies, and healthcare companies. And, um, you know, across the board made a decision not to raise subsequent funds. Those funds uh, would have been used to invest in, in all categories, but that's not happening. Okay. So, so Josh, you've shared a lot of great information with us, even advice on, you know, the sales reps and how to look at companies and how to be a student of the game. Is there any other um, advice that you have for the commercial team out there, marketing folks, sales reps looking at healthcare over the next five to 10 years on what they should be doing, be a student of the game, anything else that you could uh, share with them? Yeah. um, The only thing I would, uh, offer up is uh, to, to reiterate on the student of the game part because I'm amazed at how few people in medical devices could be sales, marketing, could be within the organization, so I don't want to just pick on the sales people, are not taking advantage of the publicly available information that is more available today than it has ever been in history about what's going on blog posts like this one, right. it could be published articles. I think that if you want to be in medical devices today or healthcare today, and since it's changing so much, you need to dedicate an appreciable portion of your week to being a student because the business is moving that quickly. It's moving quickly for the physicians, for the administrators, and to stay on top of that is becoming an increasingly important aspect of everybody's business. So much of what I do is read information that's coming in, talk to people that are experts in the industry to stay on top of all of this stuff. Because as we're all aware, every year brings a new challenge, but it brings a new opportunity. And to be in front of those opportunities, you got to be reading, you got to be talking to people. And so get out of your normal comfort zone. Yeah, no, that's great advice. Now, you're in a great position where people are sending you information. If you're a sales rep, is it just Googling or are there certain sites certain places people can go to find this information just to get started? Sure. Um, so uh, if you're, uh, and I'm bringing these up in no particular order, but if you're interested in deals and investments, um, uh, a nice publicly available blog that's posted every day is in um, the Fortune uh, entity, Fortune Magazine, and it's online. It's called Term Sheet. So if you just Google term sheet fortune, you'll see that you can sign up for free. And it typically has a listing of all sorts of deals that are being done, not just healthcare, sure. but across the spectrum. I read that every day. Um, that, that is a phenomenal posting. Um, I have small investments in a number of funds, You know, whether it be your Fidelities, your Transamericas or whatever. You don't have to have a lot of money in there to start an account. And I do that because they have research centers within their platforms. And so if you go in, if you're, if you're a customer and 
you know, I, I got, I think, 200 bucks in a Scott Trade account. But you go in there, you can get free research on almost any company that's out there. And so what you put on your Google Finance ticker is we all know a bunch of medical device companies. If not, you can look up uh, their index and start monitoring how is Nevro doing? How's Glaucos doing? How's Intellis doing? Go down the list right. and then start reading the research reports on those. You'll learn so much about what's going on. Put Striker on there. Put Medtronic on there. J&J. And so that's what I do. It's publicly available. I think it's very helpful. But on top of that, I encourage folks to network. We all know, particularly in sales, the importance of networking. But you know, whether it's an attorney, an accountant, a venture capitalist, you know, go out there, make new connections on a regular basis, and understand what people are thinking in the healthcare industry. Um, it's a full-time job. Yeah. I do it constantly, but I love it. I learn a lot about it, and there's no reason others can't do it as well. No, great advice, Josh. So, well, listen, we've taken up a, a good hour of your time. I wanna, I wanna thank you for taking your time and, and sharing your experience, your background, your knowledge, your foresight into the medical. A healthcare landscape for our, for our audience. I know they appreciate it. And uh, I think a lot of Scott uh, training accounts are going to be open now just to get that research. So they may be excited, but if it's only a hundred bucks, you know, they, they might not get too excited, but I love that. I love that <laughs> advice. So, um, so thank you very much. And um, any, uh, anything else you'd like to share? I think that's it for now. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And to the Medical Sales Nation, until next time, you've got some homework ahead of you. So we'll talk to you soon.